My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA here in London. And in this podcast, I'm putting my guests on the spot. There are really huge questions that if we choose to face them, we could answer well and that could move us forward. Throughout this series, I'm asking leading experts, renowned thinkers and global leaders to offer me one big idea that could help shape the new era we're moving into. What I hope is that this crisis gives us the opportunity to update our worldview, move to a different kind of ideology. This is Bridges to the Future from the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by Hilary Cottam, who's a thinker, an innovator, who's influenced my thought over many years. Hilary, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And I understand that there may be a ballet class starting in the room below yours at some point. We'll soldier on, even if we hear, I don't know, Tchaikovsky playing in the background. Exactly. <laughs> How are you, Hilary? I'm well, thank you. I think like many people, I'm sort of alternating between huge hope and quite big chasms of despair about whether we can really make change in the months and the years to come. Well, that's precisely what we're going to be talking about. So without further ado, Hilary Cotton, what is your big idea for the post-COVID world? My big idea is around our social systems. I think we need a social revolution as broad and deep as we had following the Second World War. And I think that that revolution needs to do three things, really. It needs to tell us a new story about where we're going and what could be that everybody can see themselves as part of. It needs to enable transition in the post-COVID world, but more importantly, through the kind of ecological challenges we face. And thirdly, I think it needs to pick up on the legacy issues of people who were never well served by the post-war settlement and whose problems in many ways have kind of grown deeper and more entrenched. And my big idea is that we move away from a set of systems that are essentially designed to kind of see us as atomized parts that can be fixed to a new way of thinking, which sees us as humans who want to connect and have the potential to grow our capabilities and to think about how we can foster capability growth for everybody in every place. So this is a kind of new collectivism, isn't it? And I want to explore that in a moment. But Hilary, I haven't really properly introduced you. So the one way to do that is for you to tell me how this idea reflects your own experience. What is it that has led you, the writing, the social innovation and design, what is it that's led you to this view? Well, I mean, my sort of working life has been a story of two halves. The first half working internationally in what was then called the developing world and a second half working here in the UK. And I think there have been two concerns. So one is, why does well-meaning policy made usually by elites never connect to real lives and create real change? So how could we work in a different way which sort of inverts that and connects lives to policy in a way that can make change? But the second thing is that I have for the last decade been working in communities across the country actually building alternative forms of welfare, looking at how cradle to grave we could actually design something different that works better, that works with the grain of everyday life and actually does usually, well, always cost less money. And I wrote about that in my book, Radical Help. 
So I'm drawing on that experience of that that sort of deep practice, but also on the experience of writing, thinking, reflecting, traveling again internationally and looking at what's really happening. And I think the reason that I'm convinced we need a revolution is not because of COVID. It's about all the deeper things that were already there. And particularly, I've spent quite a lot of time looking at what happens to social systems in technology revolutions. And we always see sooner or later profound shifts. So we should expect that given that we are kind of probably halfway through a sort of you know, massive digital revolution, that we are going to see profound change in our social systems. The question is, how are we going to shape that? So we've thought a lot, as I think you know at the RSA, about this relationship between crisis and change. And kind of broadly speaking, one of the things we argue is that if there's going to be change in a crisis, it will reflect the fact that there was a build-up of demand and capacity and need for change before the crisis. Things don't come from nowhere in a crisis. So what are the aspects of a society of our public services before the crisis that were creating the need for this revolution? Yes, I mean, I think that's really important because I think, you know, we'll get the revolution. We might have to wait for sort of more pent up anger and it'll take another 20 years or we can kind of shepherd it in a different way. But I think to answer your question, there are three main things. So one is that I think that we face completely different sorts of challenges to those that were there when our welfare systems were designed. And as you say, you've done a lot of work on this at the RSA, but if we take the example of health, you know, we've got centralised systems designed around infectious disease, which actually we can talk about haven't been able to cope with this infectious disease, but more importantly, they can't deal with the disease burden of today, which are chronic conditions. And whether we think about health, the climate change, migration, these are all issues that need deep participation of the populations to grow change. And yet we've got these systems that are designed to manage us at arm's length. So that's one challenge. The second challenge is that, you know, deep social change started in the 1960s. We can talk a lot about care, perhaps, as an example, you know, Beveridge didn't know what to do about care. He swept it under the front door. He thought that women would care for children, for ageing parents, for neighbours if necessary. And basically, since the 1960s, that's broken down. Women don't want to just care. Men also want to care. And we haven't been able to find responses to these sort of deeper social change, which, again, is very intimately bound up, I think, with technology in lots of different ways. And the third thing is, I alluded to at the beginning, which is that Poverty itself has changed and so has inequality. So we've got this dual challenge of, on the one hand, deep ingrained issues that were never addressed, whether it's sort of race, gender. I mean, Beveridge himself was very concerned. He talked about what he called handicapped people and he felt that they had been left out of the settlement. And then we've got the fact that poverty itself has morphed and changed. So one of the things I write about is the relational aspects of poverty. I mean, social research shows that it's not just about money, it's about who you know. And yet we've got a set of quite sort of transactional welfare systems that can't even see those types of challenges, let alone think about how they'll address them. So these are things that have been building, I mean, arguably since the 1970s, I think. Somebody I hope that we'll get on the podcast at some future time is Indy Johar, who talks about, he uses this phrase, the deep code. He says that in order to achieve change, you have to understand the deep code of institutions and systems in order to understand how you might, as it were, decode it. Your ideas, this revolution, it does involve understanding the kind of deep code of public service bureaucracy of our representative democratic system, for example, and dismantling that, doesn't it? Well, perhaps evolving. I mean, let's perhaps dismantle, perhaps evolve, perhaps create. I mean, a whole mixture of those as happened when we kind of created the welfare state. But I do think that that's exactly right. I mean, on the one hand, we've got sort of mindsets which sort of think that 
people have stable lives and every now and again they have a problem and then they can be, as I say, fixed, whether it's in the health service or found a job through an employment service. But modern life is not like that. It's continually precarious and continually changing and we don't have that kind of fluidity. So that's part of the deep system. The fact that the services and systems themselves reflect the 1950s hierarchical centralised era in which they were designed is another challenge. But I also think there's something even deeper. I mean, as you know, I work in design and every system is designed around some form of pattern. And I think the pattern at the heart of our welfare systems is on the one hand, the idea of homo economicus, you know, the kind of maximising a selfish male. So that means that we think about the economy first and social systems are just meant to kind of support people that fall out of the economy. And I'd make a very strong argument that we need to relink social systems and economic systems in a different way. And then, of course, homo economicus has a cousin who is the sort of, you know, the selfish gene with the idea that, you know, humans are always going to be cheating in some form, the Dawkins idea. And so we have to kind of spend a lot of time worrying about free riders and so on. I mean, in fact, I show in Radical Help how about 80% of our systems are actually spent on assessing and making sure that we don't have free riders. But across disciplines, from biology to philosophy to, you know, new economics, what we can see is that those ideas no longer hold, really, that we're not homo economicus. I mean, I think that we are this idea of sapiens integra. We want to connect. We're not kind of the selfish gene either, that we do flourish the more we are connected. And that's not whether we want to connect or not. That just happens to be what seems to be developing through all sorts of disciplines. So I think that that is the deep code that needs to change. If we thought differently about who humans are and what their capacity is to grow and to heal, we would have very different social systems. Let's make this concrete in terms of something we've seen recently, which is the growth of the mutual aid movement during the COVID crisis. So this is what tens of thousands, maybe more, I don't know, of groups often kind of starting on WhatsApp or whatever, coming together to tend to the people who are most vulnerable in their communities. An amazing kind of movement. But yet it could be argued that that is because we all had a common and shared sense of purpose. And it was a kind of short term thing. And we could do it without the normal kinds of regulatory safeguards and concerns that people might have for all sorts of different reasons. It almost sounds as though you want to be able to take the spirit of those mutual aid movements, that kind of lateral, collaborative, spontaneous, bottom up model, and you want to infect traditional top-down public services with it. But how does one actually do that? Because in a sense, isn't the kind of ethos that one is able to see in these small-scale bottom-up experiments just one that can't sustain itself when you have to make big decisions about the allocation of resources or dealing with risks, for example? Oh, that's such a big and complicated question. I mean, Well, in fact, I mean, I would argue the opposite, of course. What we have seen, I think, really clearly in this pandemic is that centralised systems can't cope, whether it's a kind of hospital system or whether it's a supermarket. You know, we've seen that at a very small level, people can work horizontally and they can take care of one another. Local shops are stocked, neighbours taking care of each other in the way that you're talking about. I don't think that we should expect that kind of social infrastructure that has mushroomed to be the social infrastructure of the future. But what we can see is a different kind of DNA in there that we can use going forward. So one thing I think is really important is that we've had a mass experience of participation and that changes you. You Once you know your neighbours, you don't go back to not knowing your neighbours. And I think this is really important because in the models of future welfare that 
I developed and I write about in Radical Help, we would always have the experience with Circle, for example, which was our sort of collaborative community response to support people who are older and was very successful. You know, 10,000 people use it. It stopped hospital readmissions, unnecessary visits to GPs and so on. We would go to local authorities and we would say, look, we've got this great model. We can set it up for you. And they'd look at the business case and they'd always say, oh, yes, well, this is great. This would save us money. But, you know, the problem is people will never participate here. We can't do this here. Now, we can see that that is not the case anywhere. So we can't kind of use that excuse anymore. In fact, it wasn't the case then. We never found a place where people wouldn't participate. But what we can do is we can think about how we can now design systems that work in that open way out. I'm not sure if your question is saying, does that mean, therefore, that we won't have responses to care or to work or to health that look the same in every place? That is what it means. You know, things will look different in different places. We can have a kind of social code that is interpreted and I mean I've just written a kind of paper that puts out what that social code should be and that is then interpreted in different ways and in different places but I think we absolutely can think of a sort of mass system that knits all this code together. Now listening to you in a way the the easy kind of target in terms of who has to change is you know Whitehall and politicians and public service managers and leaders but it seems to me that what you're saying has also got implications for all of us. Beveridge, of course, talked about a contributory principle, and over the decades that contributory principle declined in public services. So unlike European systems of social insurance, where there was a kind of sense of reciprocity that you had to put money aside and then that money was there for you when you needed it, and we could have moved more to a kind of universalist model here. Would it be a reasonable thought Hillary, listening to your idea of a revolution, that we need a new contributory principle, which is maybe not about financial contribution, or that might be part of it, and of course we'll have to pay our taxes, national insurance or whatever, but social contribution, that if you want these different kinds of systems, which are more collaborative, which are more human, that are more relational, more of us are going to have to step up to the plate, being volunteers, for example. Well, I think more of us want to, and that's what we've seen. But you will only step up if you can contribute to something that's very local that you can touch and see. You're not going to step up to something that is kind of mass and not part of your community. You're also not going to step up if you think that this is just a way of sort of, you know, making do with a state that no longer wants to be there, that they can't afford to put their library books back, so you've got to put them back. I mean, that's a different kind of collaboration. But sort of to your central point, I think it is really important that we rethink what resource is. And, you know, obviously the sorts of systems that I'm designing are only possible in a digital era. It's not that not that technology is the solution, it's that technology can underpin different sorts of solutions. And one of those is about resource. It's perfectly possible now to think of systems that combine public money, private money, time, skills in completely different ways. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to kind of blend all of that resource. And we can see models growing in lots of different places around care, for example, where on a small scale, that's allowed to happen. I mean, I didn't answer your question about risk, but of course, the sort of risk mindset kind of really worries about those kinds of models. And I think wrongly so. I mean, risk is part of, you know, when I talked about the mindsets that are kind of governing our attitude to how we might redesign social systems, it is a sort of, I don't know, it's a sort of new public management kind of invading the heart and the mind, isn't it? And that we've kind of really emphasised risk at the sort of shutting out everything else. Now, I mean, I work with very vulnerable communities, so I take it seriously. But if we start from possibility, think what's possible, what do people want to create, and then manage the risk afterwards, you get very different sorts of solutions. But that's, isn't it, another example of how your revolution will require us as citizens to think differently. I remember that, you know, 
Ben Page, the pollster, we both know, you know, will point out, for example, that people will, in the same survey, say that they think more power should be devolved. But then if you ask them, do you think the services in one place should be different from the services in another place? Not only will they say, no, there should be uniformity of provision in the areas that the government tries to do it now, but they'll go further. You'll find the public say that we should all have the same entitlement to parks or other kind of public amenities. So we're going to have to give that up, aren't we? We're going to have to give up the idea that fairness means that everybody gets the same thing. Well, everybody getting the same thing, of course, is deeply unfair, as we've seen in this pandemic, because, you know, crises hit us in different ways. When unemployment comes, it's not going to fall on everybody the same. It's going to fall harder, you know, if you're black, if you're a woman, you know, if you live in certain parts of the country. So, in fact, this idea that we've treated everybody the same is deeply unfair. But if I can unpack what you're saying, I mean, first of all, I think to have this revolution, there are four sort of sectors of society, if you want, that are going to have to kind of join in in a different way. So one is people, it's us. Yes, that's definitely true. The other is, you know, the role of intellectuals. I mean, in a sort of Gramscian organic intellectual sense of kind of how are we going to tell these stories that we can grow into? And that really relates, I think. I mean, the other two are the state and business, and we can come back to that. But I think, you know, I have to say, if I would abolish one thing, come the revolution, it would be the focus group. Because, of course, when you go and ask people in this way of what do you think, in a context of sort of 30 years of taking things away from people, the natural instinct is to kind of hold on to what we've got and grip it in case what comes is lesser or worse. I mean, that's why even though we know hospitals are not the solution to our healthcare, we're going to build some more. And if people talk about closing them, politicians who you and I know who will say behind closed doors that we don't need hospitals will go to the barricades and defend those hospitals. And that's why I think experimentation, which is the work that I do, is so important. Because if you build locally with local knowledge, alternative systems, I never get that response because people can touch and feel and see something that belongs to them. And then the conversation is very, very different. It's not abstract anymore. And it's not about losing something. But I mean, Hillary, if there were 10,000 of you, I would sign up to the revolution tomorrow. But there's 10 million, Matthew. So that's great. (laughs) Well, are there 10? I mean, look, that's a nice thing to say. But are there 10 million? I mean, actually, the skills that are involved in bringing a community together in finding a kind of consensus, in dealing with the fact that some people have very strong opinions, they're quite awkward, you know, they're not easy to kind of engage in a constructive conversation, that then you've got to design something, and that's very hard to do. And then having designed it and established it with a first flush of enthusiasm, you've then got to sustain it through hard times. I mean, I think, you know, isn't one of the bits of experience that you've had that establishing these things with very skilled and dedicated people is one thing, sustaining them is another. Well, okay. I mean, I would like to go back to the thing you so kindly say about me, because I really think that all over the country, this is already happening and it's got nothing to do with me. And one of the amazing things about having written a book and sort of walking around with it is how much I've learned from other people. So I really would like to take myself out of the equation. But I think the sustaining point is really important because if you try to do the work that I do in the face of current systems and in the face of current funding mechanisms, you're always kind of working against this very, very strong wind. And so that, I think, brings us to the role of the state, which is that this work will flourish if the state redraws the framework and sort of redraws the architecture and asks people to kind of, you know, join in a different way and play in a different way. And that is what happened after the Second World War. You know, the Beveridge Report basically said, you know, we're going in this direction 
if you go in this direction, you'll be paid. And if you don't, you won't. Now, it was quite brutal. So I'm really, you know, I, I'm very fond of the Peckham Health experiment, for example, which kind of, you know, was lost in that. We know that doctors didn't like it. You know, they came kicking and screaming into the NHS because they realised otherwise that they wouldn't be paid. But there was a very clear framework. And that enabled all sorts of work to flourish and grow. And that's the thing that I feel that I'm, you know, so convinced about because I spend so much time in communities all across the country is that this work is everywhere but at the moment it's struggling in the cracks it's you know communities doing things in the face of some statutory services there's no funding there's kind of regulations which no longer work and so it's extremely hard work it's rolling a rock up the hill but it doesn't need to be that way if we redrew the sort of rules of the game this work would flourish and that's what would happen is that work that already exists would grow we wouldn't have to kind of create everything anew or dismantle things would take on new form within this new system I'm reminded of something that Dawn Alstwick, who's head of the National Lottery Community Fund, said to me, which is that we underestimate the dynamism, creativity, resilience of some of our most disadvantaged communities. But that the problem is when that interfaces with the state and that because of austerity, but also because of the kind of ethos that you described earlier, a kind of ethos of not trusting people that we've seen in certain services like welfare, that their experience of the state has become more and more alienating and that that is a very dangerous situation. Now, if you share that perspective, what is it that practical people need to do. If I'm a local authority leader or a chief executive or health authority, and I I understand your diagnosis, I agree with it. I agree that there's an enormous amount of energy and creativity and reciprocity and generosity and love waiting to be tapped or already being expressed, but not connecting to the system. What would I need to do to be able to allow that energy to start to flow up into the systems that I managed? Yes. I mean, I think the first thing is back to the narrative. I mean, you have to tell a story that enables everybody to sort of reposition themselves in that local place. And that, I think, is a story that the community can build and respond to, that statutory services can respond to, and the economic actors, who I think are a really important part of this, you know, local business can respond to. And if you think about, you know, something that I was involved with, the Wigan deal, that's exactly what happened. The story of the deal allowed a different conversation to happen and then for assets to be kind of transferred and things to grow and things to shrink. And that's what happened. Just tell us a bit more about the Wigan deal. So the Wigan deal, I started working in Wigan, I can't remember, but sort of in the early 2000s with our family work, which was called Life, which was about, to your point really, was about saying that we have very good people in our services, but working within current sort of very punitive and very hierarchical systems, they're not able to do good work. What would happen if we kind of took people out of those systems and asked them to kind of be human and to support people in new ways, which was essentially what we did with families. And we started working on a couple of estates with very different results. And then when the sort of cuts came in 2009 and Wigan had to take 40% of their budget out, they realised that they needed a different way of working. And so they turned to life and they looked at the principles, which in fact they'd already started to take out of family work and into older people's work and so on, and said, what would happen if we took these sort of principles about horizontal working, being yourself, openness and so on, into our system. And they started a conversation with their public saying, you know, what would a deal look like where we sort of allowed we gave assets back to citizens. So, for example, they gave community assets back with budgets. You know, it wasn't like, you know, here, take the pool and run the pool. It was like, you know, this belongs to you anyway. And if we gave you support and 10 years of budget, how would you use this asset? 
there was an absolutely top to bottom rethink about what the nature of public service was. So the principles were taken and then everybody within the local authority, whether you're a social worker or whether you're an accountant, was asked whether you wanted to work in this new way according to these principles. And if you didn't, you left. I mean, they had to cut, uh, tragically, a lot of people because they had such terrible budget cuts. But it gave them the opportunity to reform around a different culture with really remarkable results. I mean, you know, I constantly bring teams from across the Nordic countries to Wigan to look at what they're doing so that they can learn from it and improve their welfare system. Something really, you know, so extraordinary things are happening across our country. Yeah, well, that's a very powerful example. But, you know, anybody could, I would argue, and Donna Hall, who's the chief executive, uh, would argue that anybody can do that. I mean, what we see is that at the moment, Unlike when I started this work, many, many people want to work in this way. But it's difficult at the moment. It's sort of like how to dive into that cold swimming pool. What are the processes? And you've asked that, what would you do as a chief executive? I mean, you need a process and you need a different way of forming a conversation and experimenting and building the work. And I do think that those skills are sort of scarce on the ground at the moment. And we need to grow sort of barefoot actors that can do that. I agree with you in that case. It's not just that there's sort of one Hillary Cotton. Those skills are not difficult, but they're not sort of widely available at the moment. And I think that that's really important. And then you need alignment. I mean, all the places that have done really radical work have very strong alignment between the sort of executives and the politicians locally. Which, as you say, takes you back to the kind of vision thing. Because in the end, this work is difficult. You know, this work is messy. It works in some places. It doesn't work in other places. One of the things that people like you have kind of learned and then taught others is that the notion of replication, you've got to be careful. You can't just pick up a practice that works in Wigan and plonk it down in Lowestoft and expect it's going to work. Exactly. It can't be the deal in Lowestoft. And yet some people in not Lowestoft, I mean, I don't, you know, Lowestoft is actually not a place I work in, but, you know, might want the deal. And that wouldn't be the right solution. It's got to be whatever is right for Lowestoft. And it has to be, the whole system has to be engaged in this, it seems to me. That's another part of it. Because, you know, some people being cynical might listen to this and think, well, hang on. I recognise these ideas. Didn't David Cameron, he talked about the post-bureaucratic state. Well, that, that sounds to be what Hillary is talking about. And then didn't he talk about the big society? Isn't that what Hillary is talking about? And my reflection on that was, yes, of course, austerity absolutely cut across those aspirations because that stripped out just the kinds of people you most needed to build the kind of fabric, community fabric that you're talking about. But also, I always felt that David Cameron, the people around him, massively underestimated the kind of system-wide change that would be required if you wanted a very different model. Yes, I agree. And actually didn't have a theory of the state, so couldn't make that change because they didn't understand how things operated either in a good way, what was there that they could use to sort of support, you know, the deal couldn't have happened without amazing public workers in Wigan, or in a kind of negative way where the system tries to bite back because we are talking about power. I think that's really important. And in the third part of Radical Help, I talk about actually how to do this work. And some of those pages are dedicated to what happens when you're successful and the system then becomes really worried and tries to close you down. Hilary, I can't let you go because one of the things that's marvellous about your work is there are so many concrete examples. You've talked about the Wigan deal. Just give us one more inspirational example of this kind of thinking in practice. Well, I mean, one of the experiments that I most love in Radical Help that I worked on, and in fact, I'm sort of developing in a different way now in my work, was the work that we did on work. And we really wanted to understand not only how people find work, but how you progress in work. And we were convinced that it was actually a relational issue, not a skills issue. And so we set up a way of working, which was essentially, you know, that all current sort of job systems basically ask you, 
what are your skills and how long have you been out of work? And they work from there. And we didn't ask anybody that at all. We asked people, what's your dream and who do you need to know? And then we connected somebody onto that next way. And of course, we started by doing that individually and then by kind of creating communities. And this work sort of has had randomized controlled trials because, you know, you have to be sort of, you're working with DWP. And it was, you know, three times as successful for half the price when we went absolutely thinking about work as relationships. And also, I mean, I think this is really important because I talked at the beginning about the capability approach, also thinking about any support you offer somebody as developmental. So in this service, which we called Backer at the time, it wasn't just about having a relationship to find a job. It was about nurturing relationships to keep progressing through the system and get better work. And I think that that's such an important way of rethinking how we find work, the nature of the working life and what kind of support needs to come around us. And probably even more important now when we know that we're facing mass unemployment in certain sectors. So how we think about that and how we think about that in a kind of context of ecological transition and sort of societal relationships, well, I think that that work points the way. Hilary Cotton, thank you so much for sharing your vision of the revolution and sign me up. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.